This episode is brought to you by Made by Music, the new podcast from Cambridge Audio. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. And it's been a minute, hasn't it? So I guess kicking off this, I guess we call it new season of the podcast, I want to welcome a musician. And he has nothing to do with hi-fi or the audiophile world, as far as I'm aware. He makes music for a living, has done for, what, three, maybe four decades. Is that right, David Morley? Yeah, it's... uh... Uh, when did I first? I guess my first release was '88. So, right, okay, you know, 35 years, you know. Right. So, y- your name is David Morley, and I, mm. I googled you to say for a bit of just a bit of background. <laughs> is it true that you were a child actor and were in Barry Lyndon? It is. Yes. Yeah, a weird sort of thing. Yeah. It is. So could you tell, I mean, we can talk about the electronic music stuff in a minute, but mm. so Barry Lyndon is probably one of Stanley Kubrick's lesser known films. Would I be yeah. being unfair in saying that, David? No, not unfair. I mean, I think it, it, it being a costume drama, it, mm. it kind of alienated, probably still does, a certain amount of people. Um, but fortunately, over the years, it's kind of, you know, come to be appreciated and I, and I think people yes. appreciate it a lot for the. Uh, not, uh, initially, it was appreciated for the um, <clears throat> for the uh, for the look, you know, and for the camera work. Mm, the and, uh, it was all yeah. lit with candlelight and natural light, and uh, so pe- and and obviously, you know, if you when you see it on a big screen, it really is like moving, um, you know, paintings. It's it's beautiful. Mm. But that was maybe a, a bit of a negative in a certain way because people didn't really appreciate it as much for the story or the other aspects. But yeah, so you know that was um, you know when I was about eight, um, mm-hmm. and before that I'd been doing adverts. Uh, we lived in London, and uh, uh, and and I don't quite know why, but my you know I was uh, photogenic as a very young kid. Uh, blonde hair and you know blue eyes and kind of small i guess it just seemed to work <laughs> so i was doing adverts like uh when it was print adverts like you know clothes and stuff um catalogs and mm. then i went to a, a um a, a drama school where uh, um, which was barbara speaks drama school in acton where actually the head the head of the school was uh uh uh, Phil Collins' mum. <laughs> Very weird. Wow, I didn't know. Yeah, that. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But so that was then, you know, and and uh, you just used to get hauled off for auditions. So you'd have a normal-ish school, and you get hauled off for auditions. And uh, I ended up, you know, going for an audition for the film, and somehow getting it. So that was my my thing. And uh, yeah, I, I sort of totally appreciate that you know uh, um you know my life could have been very different if i'd carried on acting it would have gone a different route and i'm extremely happy it didn't on one hand because you know i ended up doing something i love as well Uh, but having that as a memory because i still remember a lot of the filming and uh and and all of that stuff you know it's a nice thing so 
if if I can try and join the dots here between, say, Barry Lyndon, and then when I first encountered your name on the back of a CD sleeve, which was the Apollo Ambient Collection mm-hmm. in ninety three or two, I forget yeah. now, yeah, something like that, maybe ninety two. Yeah, right. So how do we go from Barry Lyndon to appearing on an RNS sub labels compilation of sort of home listening ambient <laughs> music at the time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something I ask myself occasionally, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, no. Well, so what happened is I, I did the film, and that was filmed in in uh, the UK. Uh, mm. But in that time, my dad had moved to Belgium um, because he got a job at the European market or EEC, mm-hmm. and um, and then so we moved over there. In fact, we'd moved over there before filming started, so uh, it was a bit chaotic um uh, we actually i don't recall this 100 percent, but my parents said that kubrick actually sent someone over because they couldn't find us or something so they found <laughs> uh, we'd moved to belgium and actually sent someone over to knock on the door and say david's got the role you know uh and that was so we were already living in in brussels and uh and i just after the film, I remember there were uh, someone came up and said about me being in another film. And my parents basically said no because, uh, to be honest, it was a long filming. It was even though you know it didn't even matter how much you were in a film with Kubrick. He filmed from start to finish, so you were around all the time. Um, and I think it was heading up for a year that I was uh, on set, as it were, maybe maybe mm. nine months or something. I can't remember exactly. But I just missed school. You had a tutor, but I, I was missing school, and and I, I think it was a, f- a fair choice. I mean, you know, to to say no, it's time for just a normal life and school, um, which again, you know, uh, is no bad thing. Having friends, having a normal existence. Uh, so I had lots of you know uh, friends who were into music, basically. Uh, so when I was at school, probably around. Um, Fairly soon after that, tennis or something, I started playing guitar. Um, I started with uh, classical guitar, trying, and, and I, I gave that up. But a few years later, I picked up electric guitar. So around 13 or something like that. So I was always into music from quite a, you know, tennis or something. I was into music. My parents were, you know, we used to listen to a lot of classic stuff around the house, jazz and Beatles and and. Uh, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, so I started playing in, band, in, in a band with uh, school friends and um, and just got into music, you know, and then I ended up, um, how that worked out, I, I went to boarding school in England and had a band there, kind of, and then stayed for a year in England playing in a band and then went back to Belgium at about 18 and by that time, I'd at boarding school, I'd discovered Tangerine Dream. So I, I'd gone through uh, <clears throat> uh, sort of the classic stuff <laughs> with my parents. And then when I was around 13, punk came on and I, I loved all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I heard was Dog Eat Dog by Adam and the Ants. And uh, uh, that really struck me. And um, And then... You know, Pink Floyd, <laughs> Black Sabbath, uh, so many things I liked when I was a teenager. 
but then I I heard Tangerine Dream, and I kind of that was the moment where I I was probably sixteen, and that was the moment where I uh, I just was listening, and I was like, oh my god, you know, it's much as I love rock and everything and jazz and all styles, this was otherworldly, and this was. Mm-hmm. unheard of to me and that was it i was just like how do they make these sounds how how where do they come from and you know why is there no counting and why is there no form and why is it so basically you know always being interested in music but i had that moment where tangerine dream i heard it and i was like okay you know i've got to find out what a synthesizer does and uh, you know and then after that i started working uh, studying guitar and the where I studied guitar, they had a studio. So when the studio was, um, we could use the studio occasionally. And also when other people were recording, you could go in there. And 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 that triggered my sort of pro- producing side. I just mm. loved being in that studio with all the equipment and the mixer and the tape machines and the, the big rooms. And I mean, it was, you know, sealed my fate you know i was just i love studios and i loved synthesizers and i love gear and uh and and that was that really so i i got into sort of electronic music found some secondhand synths made some you know made actually an ep with a friend hmm. uh james martinez a good friend of mine and and then that renat heard from rns records and mm-hmm. uh, he actually said, you know, the record wasn't his thing, but he 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 heard that it was well put together. And he asked me if I wanted to come and help him put his studio together and uh, and start producing for or with him. And yeah, and that was that. Yeah, could you explain to us mm. just a little bit about who Renard and RNS yeah. are? Because they still are. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, they they were. Uh, before I was there, I'm not entirely sure of the, all of their history, but he, he, he started in the eighties, uh, Renat and Sabine, his wife, and that was RNS records. And towards the end of the eighties, um, in Belgium, you had the new beat scene and, and that was pretty big in Belgium. I mean, that was a big thing. And um, I think the people he had been working with kind of, it wasn't their thing. And I was just very young and just wanted to get in, you know, like anyone, if you, know, you just want to start somewhere and see where it goes. And um, uh, and then it was basically, I don't know if it was 87 or something. Um, uh, it was me, Cisco Ferreira, and uh, CJ Boland, who started working for Renat. It was us three. And uh, you know, CJ was a few years younger than me. So was Cisco. And um, and we basically built up the studio and, and worked on each other's stuff, you know, various projects uh, from about probably 87, 88 on. So that was okay. you know, how that started. And Renat, yeah, RNS then became, uh, you know, at the time, I'd say one of the... Definitely in, well, absolutely, definitely in Belgium, there was Antler Records as well. But I think RNS w- was quite renowned uh, over Europe anyway. Um, Is it fair to say that it was 
Belgium's equivalent of warp records. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, they were that yeah. important in a certain way. Yeah. Um, and also, Renard was very open-minded. I mean, he was one of the first labels that, that you know, in Europe that brought in uh, sort of techno from Detroit, you know, Derek May and uh, Juan Atkins and, and released stuff of theirs. Um, you know, so uh, that he was very forward-thinking, very open. Mm. and very driven so you know uh and gave you know i mean there's lots of, you know i won't go into any of the classic stories of how what it's like with contracts and things but you know <laughs> to be to be let in the door and to be given the keys to a studio and you know putting records out um you know he gave so many people a chance including me you know so so is that where you made the tracks that would become those tracks that appeared on the Apollo Ambient Collection? Um, well, I also had a small setup at home, um, mm. very small. But in those days, everything was small. I mean, you, you know, um, even the RNS studio was relatively small. Um, but, you know, at home I had like a Jupiter 4 and an 808 and a mixer and a 4-track. And um, because in those days, no one wanted them. They all wanted a DX7 or whatever, you know, a sampler. Mm. So uh, you could you could still buy interesting synths for not too much money. So I had that at home, and some of the tracks would have been done there, and some were done in the RNS studio. Um, the f in fact, Apollo 1, the first Apollo release, was my mm -hmm. was Evolution, and that was done at home and i remember mm. with that one which is that one's an important one for me because i went to renart and he said i can't really put it on rns it doesn't really you know doesn't fit in with uh, techno um with classic techno um so he started apollo uh, to release that style of music so with apollo i was you know kind of proud to be there from the beginning uh, and to give him a reason to start it you know not just me there were other plenty of other artists doing ambient techno or stuff in that vein but you know i was there with him and uh you know we did it like that it's funny isn't it because even when i've made videos recently talking about this kind of music i call it ambient techno because that's what it was called back then but it's yeah. not a term that i hear very much anymore unless no. i'm speaking to people who are around at that <laughs> time like you you know but it was yeah, that well, was the the term for this like idm wasn't even yeah. a thing at no, that no, point, no, no. as far as I know. No. I mean, that was definitely the, – the thing is, it was all very fluid, uh, but it was and, – and but there weren't that many definitions. You know, these days, mm. I don't know any of the definitions, but everything is, you know, to be negative, pigeonholed. Whereas then, right. you know, you started making a track and it was like it could have a classic techno, you know, horn-type riff or something and a four-to-the-floor 909 or – whatever but it could just be a sequence with some strings it all came from the same place and it all had that sort of aesthetic you know the the kind of mm. i also don't really like the word the, the word homemade but obviously most of this stuff was produced on lesser equipment than pop music um mm. so so it had a certain sound and a certain you know uh grunginess for want of a better word probably but but so I, I at that time, ambient was kind of 
being made by lots of techno artists who were just, you know, sometimes you just couldn't fit a beat into a, into a sequence you had. So, well, sounds nice how it is. Let's keep it going for 10 minutes and add some extra stuff. And I, I think it was very natural, the evolution. And also, of course, the influences of, I mean, I forgot to mention it, but Eno, you know, in my world, you know, I loved mm. Eno, I loved Tangerine Dream, Schultz, uh, all those people. So although I was into making club stuff, because to be honest, you could release an EP and make some money and it was fun. And, you know, and I, I honestly think it's great music, some techno, you know, mm. um, but my natural thing was more the ambient Eno, uh, you know, direction. And you could kind of combine the two, you know, this analog synthesizer sequences, but, but the, the sound of the warm sound of Eno and, and moving away from strictly uh, the functional side of techno, which was dancing, you know, that, that shouldn't be forgotten. I also think, well, that's why people put, I don't put techno down at all because uh, one of the hardest things you can do is make functional music, make music that sounds wonderful, but also makes people dance. Mm -hmm. It's easy to make something beautiful or it's easy to make something with a beat, but to make something special where people dance on it and, and, you know, has a positive vibe is not as easy as people sometimes think. They think, oh yeah, you, you know, drum machine sequence and everyone's dancing. Not necessarily the case. So, but my natural thing was more ambient, you know. Mm. I mean, from what I recall at the time, because my first sort of uh, exposure to ambient music wasn't Tangerine Dream or Eno. It was actually mm. the Apollo Ambient Collection. This is one of the reasons I okay. asked you on, because I thought this guy was right at the start for me. And also the the Warp Compilation Artificial Intelligence. Yeah. Uh, the Positiva Ambient Collection, which is a weird one because Positiva mm. wasn't really known for that kind of thing and hasn't really done no. anything like it since. Um, and then I went back. But at the time, you know, my friends and I were all into... I guess obviously Aphex Twin, but mainly the yeah. Orb, and I think that's yeah, how yeah, we. Yeah. Oh, I think. I mean, if I'm looking at the track listing right now, because I had it on my phone a moment ago of the first Apollo compilation, I think it was because it had an Orb remix on there. No offense, David, mm -hmm. but this is why I bought it. No, I was no. like, okay, well, it's got an Aphex well, Twin yeah. track and it's got Electro, Electro Tech. I love you, Orb remix. So I thought I'll get that because it's going to yeah. be of the same kind of vein. Because we had no idea what we were buying, right? Because yeah. the enemy no, and that was the maker hadn't. Right. It was just, you had just had to try your luck on certain things. Yeah. So the, the orb, obviously, you know, they were, I mean, you know, incredible. I saw them in Foreign National in Brussels, must've been early nineties, which mm. was already amazing that the Foreign National, which is the biggest place in Brussels, you know, and I still remember standing in front of the speakers and just being like, my God, you know, it was the most impressive sound I ever had. And everything, and huh. you know, but the thing is, at that time, I would, I would say, it didn't really matter where you came from. Everyone loved everything to a certain degree. You know, there were there were maybe yeah. tracks you didn't like, but no one would say the Orb or Aphex Twin. Mm. You know, you might not be your taste, but everything was new and exciting and original, and uh, and had sort of. Um, drew from the past but in a positive way if you know what i mean like the samples on the orb mm. or the klf uh, what was the the um chill out chill out yeah you know uh 
it was just a very free time and so many interesting artists and and without being in a hundred different uh, genres everyone sounded different so you know you, you could be ambient like Aphex or the orb very different you know mm. or square pusher even you know or whatever you wanted to call it there were ambient elements in lots of techno and lots of techno elements in in ambient and uh, a very rewarding era to be into music and every week there was something that came out that was you know incredible and uh i still believe that you know i don't think it was my age i was a bit older than other people you know i was 23 i wasn't 17 and and you know just a party animal or something i i was a sort of serious guy in a certain way but i loved everything <laughs> that was going on you know <laughs> so it is yeah. hard to separate one's younger self from mm. judging the the atmosphere of that time well i find it difficult you know like it, i look back and go was i really excited about it because of some innate quality that this sort of music i don't want to use the word scene but i'm gonna to have to use that word anyway yeah. the scene had or was it because i was just i, I mean i was 20 20 21 mm. when i started to get into all of this stuff but i wasn't going to clubs until four or five years later so this yeah. is what got me into, into actual club techno because i i found it too repellent because i had no context for it yeah. So the ambient techno was kind of like an easy on-ramp for all of that, yeah. I, I, I thought. No, and and also I think one one thing to, um, to consider is also that uh, lots of ambient tracks were in effect techno tracks that were remixed by someone. So mm. it was like a pathway into it. If you heard an ambient mix of, of you know, um, well, Electrotet or whatever, you know, you, you, you were then drawn into that world as well to a certain extent. You yes. could enter from different angles. It wasn't that you had to be a party guy and the ambient uh, mixes were there to, for you to chill out after your you know, 24-hour uh, rave or anything. It was really uh, every way in was good. You know, If you liked the softer aspect, you would be drawn into the club aspect and you would mm. enjoy going to clubs. I was never a club person, but I enjoyed going to clubs to listen because occasionally a track would come on that irrelevant of what, you know, whether what style it was, it was just incredibly good. I remember my, the moment when I heard uh, "Energy Flash" by Joey Beltram. I don't know if you, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, uh, of course, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, just I was on on a pure straight ahead techno track thing. I was like, this is it. This is just, you know, he, damn, you know, that's why I don't make that kind of techno because, you know people like that do <laughs> it's incredible and uh you know and it was never anything other than positive actually for a good mm. you know six seven years it was all just you know new stuff coming out people trying things and you know that's my opinion anyway of, of that era and i i look back on it thinking yeah i mean i don't think it was just my age uh you know obviously you want more when you're younger, Malleable. it's very, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I don't think it was, I, I can look back and sort of analytically look at it and go, yep, yeah, I, under, I understand why it was such a great period. There are reasons. So in the, in the, the, the wake of Apollo one, and you had like mm. two tracks on there, plus a remix of kinetics, golden girls, is that right? Or golden yeah. girls kinetic. Yeah. I always yeah. get that. I always get that mixed up. So yeah. you'd, you'd had a few tracks on this first Apollo one compilation. 
did did you feel that you were a, a part of something that was about to become much bigger when you were doing that? Well, probably not. I mean, I, I talk about this with friends, actually. It's like looking back, you just don't appreciate it as uh, as much as you should. And I think that's natural. You're in the middle of it. You're doing it. You, mm. You're actually working as well. You're trying to earn some money and trying to do stuff. And uh, and it was just a great period. Uh, so we all we all knew something was happening, but you only look back and go, man, that was an amazing period a bit later. But having said that, uh, I actually had um, a Brazil, which was uh, me and Renard, this Spectrum, mm-hmm. the, the Brazil track, which was a club hit in effect. I remember then thinking, you know, I went to the Boccaccio in Ghent, um, not in Ghent, near Ghent, and there was a period where every half hour they'd play my track and people <laughs> would go nuts. And you're just like, okay, this is really absurd. You know, this is, and in a way it's what, you know, if you've wanted to to make music, not thinking as a career, but if you just wanted to make music from a young age and you love making music to suddenly be in a position where you think, you know, they're playing my track and people like it. Um, a lot. <laughs> I mean, mm. people were yeah. enjoying various things that made it all very <laughs> inspirational at the time. But, you know, um, uh, but and Boccaccio was just packed full all the time and it was full on and amazing. That just sort of, you know, it's not a sort of, uh, I don't know how to put it, but you're just thinking, wow, I'm getting to do this and I must be okay. You know, I can't be crap. Uh, and it's a kind of justification in a certain way, but I don't actually ever think, you know, I don't think it ever got to me, if you know what I mean. It was just kind of like mm. actually just a great thing, and it actually meant I was earning a living, and I didn't have to do what my friends did, which was go to work, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was <laughs> – no, I mean, you know, the, I, the alternative, if I hadn't been making any money at music, what would I do? just be mm. getting a job and i didn't have to do that and i didn't know how long that would last and and that was amazing at that time you know so, so did um yeah. a- apollo 2 come later because I, I guess there were some developments between apollo 1 and 2 because you you started to work with andrea parker as well yeah i i i'd started working with andrea fairly early mm. um and to be honest i really enjoyed working with Andrea and we actually played live at an RNS party. And for some reason, I was just talking about this on Facebook, actually, so, uh, uh, me and Andrea wrote some tracks. Uh, that was a bit later, actually, I'm mixing timing up, but Renat didn't mm. release them. We offered them, he didn't release them and he released, we released, released them elsewhere, which caused a bit of friction. But um, mm. initially Renat was in London and he was in a club and Andrea was DJing and she played um, my uh, Evolution EP mm-hmm. at the wrong speed, just, you know, <laughs> I mean, as Andrea will. will. Um, but so, uh, but he said, you know, uh, do you want to come and do something with David, which is the most random thing ever? And she said, yep. And uh, we hit it off straight away. And we first weekend we met up, we made. Uh, the Apollo EP, um, 
two sandwiches short of a lunchbox, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, so I'd kind of found a partner in crime, you know, and it's great mm. working on your own or work. And Renat was hard to work with because he was the boss and full mm. on and um, flying around left, right and center, you know, and um, working on my own is a challenge. I kind of, it, it's a drudge, you know, whatever. I, I can't describe it any <laughs> better than that. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing when it works, you know, and other times mm. you're just working, working on your own, and there's no one telling you, you know, that, that's crap or that's great or you know, maybe you should do this, except for yourself. And mm. suddenly meeting Andrea, where we came from different backgrounds, we had different opinions, different, you know, different talents. Whenever we were in the studio, it just happened, you know, stuff happened. And uh, mm. I'd do things she'd say, no, no, or keep going, or, and likewise. And so I guess... That was more always more important to me was working and um i didn't really mind if things weren't on compilations or were on compilations or if things did well or not well it never really struck me like that i was just happy to be getting it released but working you know and mm. working with someone who i really got on with and uh and you know i still think is ex- exceptionally talented um and you know, different to me. So it really worked because, you know, we both brought something, you know, unique. So that was probably why, you know, that period was, you know, I, I sort of changed a bit, you know, less RNS in, I was still on RNS, but less focused on that and more focused on working with Andrea and working with other people, maybe, you know. Talking of working with other people, um, mm. Earlier, you mentioned CJ Bolland. I don't know whether you say yeah. Bolland or Bolland. I've got no idea. Can you uh, correct CJ, me, please? Oh, I, I, let me think. I just called him CJ, so uh, Bolland. Okay. I think I'd say <laughs> okay. Bolland. Yeah. Because your name pops up on the credits, so I think two or three tracks on his uh, Electronic Highway album, which is uh, one of my most favorite albums of the 90s. Well, we mixed, I think it was only one track, or was it two? I can't remember. But he mixed it at my place. And um, uh, okay. uh, we were, or one of the tracks or two of the tracks, I can't, really can't remember, but I, I always got on with CJ, um, but we never did any project together. Apart from in the earlier days, there was uh, lots of those RNS EPs where it was uh, Cisco, um, CJ, me, various people working mm. all together in the studio and the project and various things like that. They were called, and um, Space Opera was another project that we all worked on hmm. um but cj i just you know we just got on and um he, i think he more needed somewhere to mix some stuff you know and um so you know that that's how that happened simply a you know a friend needing a studio <laughs> right because his music is very different to yours mm. I, yeah. I know we talk about like you know the things are from the same palette but like well, if we talk specifically about Electronic Highway, that's a very intense, clattering record. Whereas yeah. your stuff is more introspective, downbeat, probably a bit moodier and darker. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. kind of ring all the cliche bells. I'm, I'm sorry if I did there, David. But um, no, no. How did... <laughs> yeah. So you didn't make an actual album. This sounds like a criticism, but it's not. No, no. But you didn't. Till I mean, your first album was 98, something. right? 98, 98 yeah, according yeah. to Tilted. Discogs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Did you, I mean, you obviously had like almost 10 years of doing this under your belt before that came out. So yeah. did that all feed into the first album going, I've got like all this stuff to kind of get out there now? Well, yes, I think so. But I, I guess probably what it was, was uh, first of all, going back to the point of me not really caring, you know, it wasn't not in a bad way, but it just wasn't my goal to have album after album or anything. I just, I enjoyed mm. making EPs, working with other people, mixing people's stuff. Um, um, working with Andrea, you know, and, uh, so I, I, I guess that was the thing. I, I was more focused on the, the actual working side of it or, you know, and the album basically, I think Renat kind of offered me a deal for an album and it seemed right, but actually it was as you said, it was probably more a thing of, I'd had this period where from about 88, where I'd fallen into this world and this isn't a criticism mm. of that world. It wasn't really my world. You know, like I say, I came from the, 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 uh, Pink Floyd, Sabbath, punk, some jazz, mm. you know, uh, I absolutely adore Aphex Twin and, and Locust and, and, uh, Scanner and, and the stuff, you know, uh, uh, this, it's not a competition. I'm just saying where I came from uh, was a different no, place. No, I understand. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So then, when I end up, maybe after those, you know, seven, eight years of of having been in that world, and that world also changing and getting more diluted, I'd say it wasn't. You know, by '96, '97, things had changed. You know, it wasn't the same vibe as before. I guess my older influences kind of resurfaced so mm. although i don't you know tilted is very electronic and everything but there's some guitar in there there's drums there's you know there's samples of rock there's strings you know it was more of a coming together of things that perhaps i wouldn't have been able to to do five years earlier um right so and and EPs were fine, you know, for me. Uh, releasing a, an EP with four or five tracks on it was, you know, you're nearly at an album, but um, they're just easier to do, I guess. And you know, it's I find it quite hard to get nine or ten really good tracks together, to be honest. Mm. Um, so I guess that's also part of it. But um, yeah, it just ended it's up interesting like that. what you say about the the as the 90s progressed, things became more diluted because I I guess, I think it was just after Underworld's Second Toughest in the Infants came out, mm -hmm. where things started to move towards what would ultimately become Trip Hop and Big Beat. Now, I was yeah. never a huge fan of either. And no. for me, they sort of, they took away the purity of the, the electronic sound and took it in yeah. a different direction. Now, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it wasn't my no, taste. No, no, I agree. I agree, I think. Like you, I, I liked the Eno Aphex orb element, and it mm. went off to be this kind of weird music that I actually found really awkward to dance to as well because it didn't yeah. – the rhythmic structure was different. And I know that begat a whole bunch of other things, but it was just – I mean, because you say, I mean, your first album came out in 98, 99, and by that time – No, things were definitely – wildly different by then and andrea's Chemical album Kiss, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yes. so and i mean i can appreciate all of that stuff uh, but you know yes. um 
it's not my thing. I I, mm-hmm. I rarely criticize anyone, so because you know it's just, it's just what you're into, and and that doesn't mean you don't even like it. But I was really into stuff before, um, and then it's just good stuff coming out, lots of great things being released. But it was a very different world. I mean, it really was different. And I'm just trying to think what, what changed it, you know, for me is, uh, yeah, it's interesting you say the trip hop thing. It's also because, to be honest, vocals were never uh, that interesting to me. Um, Agreed. 100%. Not particularly, you know. So I kind of, like Kiss My Up, the album with Andrea, I prefer the instrumental mm. version. This isn't a, a, a diss on on her this is just i like to be able to hear the sounds and the reverbs and the backgrounds and the and i don't listen to lyrics and i i not in general um mm. i do obviously but i just mean in that world i was so interested in yes. sound and rhythm and and all of that stuff um that it became very vocally and very and also you know i don't know radio friendly sounds negative but i don't mean it yeah, it was more popular mm. and more fitting in and less maybe it was a bit I don't know. Maybe I liked the fact that before it was still underground. Uh, it wasn't on Radio One or <laughs> anything. Um but but that would be a stupid reason to not like something, to be honest. Um but I did like lots of that stuff. It's just the scene changed. So I there there was definitely a different thing and I wasn't that interested anymore, you know. And, um, yeah. I mean, I look at it this way, and maybe tell me if you agree or disagree with this. I th- I tend to see, yeah, about '96, all of that music, that ambient techno, started to lose its futuristic edge. And what I mean by mm-hmm. futuristic, I mean like otherworldly science fiction, and also, I guess, um, like Eat Static did a whole bunch of stuff around aliens, which they were the yeah. kind of the more corny end of that. But I still loved it yeah. for that. And yeah. then for me, the ultimate were the, were the future sound of London. Like that was just amazing global communication, incredible. Uh, and it's, it, it took you to a, literally almost like a, a different plane or a different planet mentally. And then after, I don't know why I always peg second toughest in, in the second mm. toughest in the infants as the, it's not even a problem child because I think that's their best album. I think it's amazing. But yeah, after no, that, I, I things agree. came a bit more, de- a bit more down to earth, you know, and a bit Probably, more sort yeah. of. But maybe if you think about it, it's like train spotting, you know. <laughs> yes, that's it. The yes. world came that down it, to earth. Were. It's like, you know, damn. It's like, um, you know, man, that's the world we inhabit where stuff like that goes on. It's not, you know, just this dream world where everything is fantastic. And and I love that film, you know. Uh, but maybe it's just the world got, you know, I don't know, like you said. It's funny you mentioned the otherworldly, or that I, I had that in my head as a word because you know I, I sort of think um, that was the thing that took me away. It's like, uh, yeah, you know, if you think of rock or, or jazz or whatever, that that has to sound like you're in in front of a band or the band is in the room with you or you're at a concert or something. Yes. Electronic music. There was no reference point. There's no person standing in front of you. There's it's sound, it's space, it's depth, it's um, otherworldly, and that was fascinating for you. Going right back to when I first heard Tangerine Dream, it's exactly that moment. I was uh, actually the story about that very quickly was that I was with uh, I was at boarding school and 
a friend at boarding school had a friend who wasn't at boarding school who had a car and we bunked off overnight <laughs> and in i sat in the back of his car of his friend's car while they sat in the front and he had tangerine dream on, on cassette and i'd never heard it before and i'd never heard anything like it before and the whole scene was otherworldly it was the middle of the night driving through hertfordshire in uh, <laughs> listening to this music when i should have been you know in in bed at, <laughs> at boarding school and mm. it just triggered something in me and it was and i think that's when you said that otherworldly word it it kind of yeah when things are taken out of when you're no longer in able to experience that when listening to music it's less interesting for me it became the real world being involved with electronic music is a complicated mix if you know what i mean having it you know this idea of like we're saying train spotting and stuff it's it's, it's a dark topic and the song that you know the the theme song it, it's a brilliant track but it's also it's not delicate it's not it's this is the real world and that is fine but i was into the not not the real world and maybe that's what happened maybe that whole period was just coming to an end you know have you ever heard Brian Eno talk about electronic music and how he relates it to paintings? No, I haven't actually. He says, or said, that basically when you have, a, say, a band and a singer, you have the singer is generally a bit like a, a person in a portrait painting. There's mm -hmm. a focus, there's a focal point, right? So that's the singer yeah. or the, the, yeah, the character who's been painted right in the middle of the painting. So your your eyes and therefore your ears by analogous association are drawn to almost like the center of the image. Yeah. And they don't wander. But when you have instrumental music, he said it's a bit like uh, a landscape painting. Mm -hmm. And because there's no central figure, your mind can, and uh, your mind's eye, if you like, or your mind's ear can wander around left and right, up and down yeah, because you're not drawn to any particular point, unless obviously, if somebody like you is making music and you want to do that and you want to sort of trigger certain sounds in certain areas to pull people in certain directions. But generally, there isn't that part of I, it. And I totally agree. I, I'll agree with everything he says in general. So, <laughs> but yes, uh, yes. <laughs> no, but it's true. And I think it's the thing of um, if you do take that landscape idea, you know, it's the at first look. It's a landscape, and then you see why well, there's a church spire just peeking out from behind that tree you know why is that yes. there you know what church is it is that important should i and that i do reference things ideas like that in music well lots of what i try and do in in electronic uh, music is i like the background i like the things that you don't hear if you if you hear a mix that i'm doing sometimes uh, and i take away the stuff that you wouldn't notice it doesn't work anymore. So there's noise in the background. There's a sound just over there that's just out of earshot, but it's there, you know. And 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 that only really works in 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 certain genres in a certain way because it, there's no point doing that in pop music. No one cares. No one because exactly that point they're listening to the main theme. They're listening to the vocalist, mm -hmm. or they're listening to the guitar solo, or they're listening to the four musicians individually. But there's no 
you know, in in this kind of ambient soundscape world or the Eno world, it's the trails of the reverb that are interesting. It's the mm. uh, you know the the noise, you know, the everything like that. So I, I totally get that, and that's possibly why I'm drawn more to the instrumental music than you know than something with a very defined focus doesn't mean i don't like it i just i you know there's plenty of vocal music as i said black sabbath and pink floyd i still listen to all that stuff as well but when i'm creating it's or, or what i really enjoy listening to it's uh it's the the experience of this this sort of width and depth that you mm. you don't you can't notice in a in a classic piece of uh pop music so when you're making an album, because you've not made many, I, I mm-hmm. mean, and again, not a criticism. I, 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 no, I, no, no, I, it's fine. Yeah, no, I still wish I'd done more, to be honest. But uh, I'm, you know, really? I'm, I'm happy. Well, I'm happy with what I've done, and I do intend to do mm. more. Um, but if I haven't got, if it's not coming together, you know, I have lots of tracks lying around, and mm. just throwing nine together because they all work or sound okay is not the point and especially in these days in these days where before you'd make money with music in these days if i release an album you know i'm not a big name at all i'm known by a few people in 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 this world um but they're not queuing up to buy my album uh, it has to say something and even then it's not going to generate a sort of livable income so it's not re- there's not a drive there to be you know, focused on that side of it, which is a good thing in some respects. Um, but why should I then release something which isn't anything other than something I totally believe in? You know, mm. uh, whereas before you could be excused for sticking something out and say, oh, I've only got five tracks, but let's throw a few remixes on because 10,000 people are going to buy it or 20,000 people are going to buy it. These days, 500, you know, 1,000 or the numbers just don't justify not doing something exceptional in in my opinion so until i've got something which i say i'm really happy with all these tracks and they all work together um i don't really have a big reason to release it you know it sounds strange but that's how i feel you know not at all i, th- I think it's perfectly logical i mean it, just for the people listening so you you did mm. tilt in 98 and yeah. then ghosts in 2007 yeah uh sanctum in 2014 and then an album i don't know actually i'm sorry the origin of storms for detuned okay. in 2016. a copy will wing its way to, <laughs> way to berlin the origin of storms is one is actually uh, i really like it you know it's a, it's different though it's very different but i really like it you know so um, I wanted to, yeah. I want to come back to the business part in a bit, but before I do that, I was going to ask mm. you a question about whether you're, when you, when you're building, let's call it for want of a better word, an ambient techno track or electronic music track, yeah. are, are you, do you find that you're more driven by mood or melody or rhythm, or is it just the interplay between the, the three? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I think there's various elements. There's one that maybe shouldn't be uh, ignored, which is the uh, playing with toys element. Um, I, you know, I uh, I ha- in the studio, um, having some equipment that 
you experiment on. It, it, sometimes you don't even have to have a, a reason. It's just you fiddle around and you see what comes out of it and it triggers an idea. Um, so basic, but basically I think I do come more from a sound perspective. Like if I have something huh. where I like the sound, if I, and that could be a sequence or just a chord or something or an idea of a sound. So I will think, um, often I'll think of the reverb or the, or the delay on a sound before mm. I've done it. It's not like a mixing process for me. It's, it's more to do with, you know, that this chord will work if it has this kind of reverb and then I'll set that up and then I'll have a sound which I like and then I can fit things into that sound. Other times it will simply be a rhythmic thing, you, you, something, you know, a, a rhythmic sequence or a beat uh, lends itself to, you know, new ideas coming on top of it. But I really do think I don't, I, I try anyway to, to approach things uniquely as much as I can. You know, um, I don't like repeating myself. I, I'd even say that in musically, I, I don't think there's, perhaps people can hear that I'm, I'm in my al albums or EPs if they, in a certain way, but I think they're all rather different because e once I've done one, I've explored that direction, you know, mm. and I, and I'm, um, kind of looking for a new system each time, you know? So the origin of storms, for example, was really a thing where I limited myself to, uh, I have a Phoenix modular synth, uh, you know, uh, nerd info, <laughs> but that no, one, no, but no, please go into it because I, yeah, I, yeah. I was going to ask you next, if you had a collection of vintage synths and, and crazy oh, stuff. Yeah, I have a few nice things, but you know, the, the thing okay. is that that's also a, uh, with the origin of storms, I I decided it to be less expansive and to focus on that synth and another synth, which is a Waldorf XTK keyboard. And just mm -hmm. with those two synths, I focus one for the chords and the polyphonic stuff and the weirdness, and the other one for the rhythmic sequences. And that was the whole element for that um, that album. So that was clearly from a, a, a decision to, to simply limit myself to those two machines and to explore them in more depths than, than, mm. than perhaps I had been, if you know what I mean. It's, it's sort of, sometimes it's important to say, where do you come from? And I came from having one synth and a drum machine and making music. And then over the years, getting into this collecting of gear, um, over the years, you pick up pieces of gear and, and you find deals and you, you know, keep buying stuff and and everything and you end up with a lot of synthesizers well i, I did right. <laughs> and then you 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 lose that kind of bedroom attitude where this is all i can afford i've got a drum machine and a synth and, a, and an old mixer i can still make music on that you know i don't mm. uh, and and that not like a challenge but just simply you know when you look back you say it was so much it was so much easier when you had less stuff because you know, you, you found the the limits of that gear and you didn't just say, okay, I've got a baseline going there. I'll pull that up and I'll use that for the course and I'll use that one for that and that one for that. You said, okay, if I want to add something else, I'm going to have to be smart here. How am I going to do that? I've only got this left. And, uh, right. you know, and yeah, I, I, so, yeah. 
it's a bit like the paradox of choice, isn't it? The, the, the more mm. you have available to you, the uh, the more you're paralyzed in, in deciding how to use it. No, absolutely. And I think that's probably, you would know that in hi-fi world. You know, if you're sitting there in your room and you've got uh, eight pairs of uh, glorious speakers, mm-hmm. um, do you spend more time listening to the speakers than you do listening to the music? You know, um, it's 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 kind of, yeah. It's a bit of both. I mean, yeah. because certain certain bits of hi-fi gear can not exclusively, but like let's say there's like a ten percent window of movement where they can be better applied to certain kinds of music. Yeah. So obviously, if I was playing one of your albums, I would definitely make sure that I had some kind of subwoofer in play or some mm. a speaker that went down to twenty or thirty hertz. Yeah. Because otherwise, or I would I would listen on headphones. Otherwise, I would, I'd feel like I was missing something. Because generally from yeah. electronic music, because they can go so low. Although I did hear uh, Tony Surgeon talk about mm-hmm. this and, and sub bass and you know how he decides when to put it in and when not to. So yeah. there does seem to be this whole dis- sub discussion amongst electronic music producers like you as to as to when do you put in sub bass elements into the music. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, but yeah, the hi-fi gear can in some ways it works the other way it can dictate what you play subconsciously yeah the weird thing is because i don't really do hi-fi in the sense of uh, uh, okay i'm moving on to a different uh, just quickly go there but like um in the studio i have fairly neutral speakers Mm -hmm. or very neutral is wrong accurate speakers uh so i have Mm. i i used dynaudio for years which i like Mm -hmm. but then when one of them blew up um, I, I decided to, you know, uh, try other things. And then I quested mm-hmm. and, uh, and Tannoy, which are the older dual concentric ones and stuff. So yep. the, these are, uh, fairly apart from the Tannoy, you know, you, uh, the, the sort of, um, analytical direction more, uh, doesn't mean they're not mm. good for listening to, especially the Dyn audio. I like them for m- music, but at home, what I listen to is uh, I have a variety, <laughs> but they're all crap. I mean, no, they're not crap, but you know, um, I have no. They're definitely not crap, but I have like uh, what are they? The uh, the the Kef one hundred and four. Okay, uh, the ancient things because I they're so warm and they're so woolly and so right. It's not you know, crap. There's nothing crap about that. That's just no. But, it's just you know, the flavor, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but they're definitely not. You know. Uh, high end these days and uh and then i also have uh, uh actually two pairs of jr149 these little round oh you know the little round speakers yes so that they were like um like a successor to the ls3 ls35a or something exactly like with a sub yeah. rogers yeah, yeah rogers uh and they're more on the they're possibly more analytical than like the kef in a certain way but they're still not they're not big speakers. They're not powerful speakers. They're 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 pleasant speakers to listen to, you know. So when I listen to music, I don't really listen in. It's probably also the the what's the word a paradox that because I listen in the studio a lot, very analytically and very precisely, or I try to uh, because I want to hear positioning, stereo, depth, all that stuff. Um. When I listen to music, I just want to hear it in a sort of 
roomy, mushy type way, you know, just in experiencing the music. I don't want to hear the I'll start listening like a mixing engineer, you know, I'll start saying, Oh God, right. this hi-hat's a little bit sharp, you know, or why is he put that over there? Or, <laughs> you know, or there's not enough reverb. I'd rather just hear it as one and hear it as a piece of music right. without so that's all anyway, I don't know why I went there. But just a weird thing that um what you said about the ten percent thing is probably true as well. I mean, speakers sound wildly different, but but we're talking about you know if they don't re- reproduce any bass, then they're no use. But most speakers do. You know, uh, right. it's, it's, it's right. just a different, slightly different emphasis. You know, obviously, yes, and and whether it's three way or two way or, or all that stuff, it, it they sound very different, but they still reproduce music in a in usually in a relatively pleasing way it's and Mm. also your ear can probably attune itself to what it's hearing you know to a certain extent so yeah i i kind of imagine that you you can go you know not wildly different but you can go fairly well like in my case the tannoys compared to the dyne audios uh, Mm. in the studio are very different sounding speakers but i'm not looking for that i'm i'm just listening um there I'm mixing or, or working and I, it's a different thing, but listening at home. Yeah, it's true. It, it's a sort of, you know, they're two different things. And, and I, I think the analytical stuff in the studio can still sound very pleasing. You know, uh, it's not, it's, it's, as you said, it's not either analytical or warm, you know, you can have a bit of both and it's just a fine line between them. I, I guess so. I guess the point I'm trying to make here, that I always seem to be trying to make, is that there isn't one ideal sound. There's not one goal mm. that we're all moving towards as as listeners anyway. Because I mean, I could bring, no. I don't know, let's say a random person to your studio to listen to your studio speakers, and then then you could take them into your lounge area or listening area and put them in front of your JR one four nines. Yeah. And some people would prefer the the Rogers, and some people would prefer the studio speakers. Yeah, depending upon how their brains are wired, whether they yeah. want to hear all that detail or whether, as you say, you just want to hear it as a sort of a collective mush, but you don't mean mushy. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, you mean no, just no, like no. A, something that's not bad, together. I don't mean mushy coherent. in a bad way. I mean it. In no, a, I know yeah, exactly. coherent is probably the right <laughs> yes. word. The one I should have. Used. <laughs> <laughs> but the the other thing not to forget actually is um, in the studio. The other thing you do need to a certain extent is your choice of speaker to be um stable i mean Mm. that's an element that you don't necessarily need when listening at home because when you're mixing stuff you need to have that reference point that is your reference point so i used the dyne audios for 15 years Mm. before i changed speakers so if if i thought the mix was good it was good because i had the experience of the speakers so i knew their their faults. I knew their, you know, they didn't have mega deep bass, so I had to be careful with the bass. If I, you know, mm. you could add. But the important thing is, I didn't chop and change. You know, I, I. That's probably what I meant in the beginning. That in the studio, you don't want to chop and change. At home, mm. uh, you can experience different speakers, and they'll give you different things. But when you're mixing, yes. uh, that's a very dangerous path to go down uh, because you need to trust your speakers. When the mix goes out, it's got to be. You know, your ears have got to have uh, heard it as the final mix. And that's probably the difference. That, that's a bigger difference between the speakers in the studio and the speakers you have at home. At home, it's just listening. It doesn't matter. You know, you, if you 
you can try a, a CD on four or five different sets of speakers, it will enhance different frequencies or different things. You mm. definitely don't want that when you're mixing. That's probably right. what I meant. No, I, I understood because you're talking about a tool yeah. that you know helps you do a, perform a certain task and you want consistency down, mm -hmm. I guess, down the years, right? Because yeah. if you're changing every year, you don't know where you are. You've got no basis no, exactly, to work. Yeah. It's like why you, why you try and keep the same room as well. Um, changing room, it's, you know, it's a hard thing to do. You, you know, that's another a topic that I have issues with is when people talk about um, acoustic sort of, uh, you know, bass bins and keep, uh, not bass bins, what do you call them? Uh, bass traps and, and adding all of that mm. stuff. Now that stuff is important in, in, a, in a room that isn't how I like a room. I don't do any of that because uh, my studio has have in general had tall ceilings and non-parallel walls. Uh, and so I don't suffer from bass buildup and things like that. That doesn't mean they're ideal rooms. That just means my ears got used to that room. So I knew how a mix would sound outside of that room because I knew the room. Um, mm. So that's also an element. You know, everything, the more stable you are, the better it is. You just know, you you say, if it's a bit bassy in this room, I know it sounds better outside because there's a bit too much bass buildup in the room. It didn't need fit. You just need to get, you just need to know that. And when it becomes second nature, that's when your mixes are, are, are always consistent, you know. Uh, so, so let's say you mm -hmm. record a track in a room that you're familiar with to be yeah. able to trust it and to trust your judgment in that space. Don't you then need to go and hear that track on other, like in a car or behind headphones, just to see if it translates properly? Y yes. Or does but, that does that happen? Yes, naturally? but less. No, it, but. What, I guess what I meant with that is uh, less and less in effect. So when I had a very stable right. studio, I would I wouldn't need to do it. I would kind of be fairly confident that you know uh, if I'd been using the same speakers in the same position on the same mixer, um, then if it sounds like that, it's going to sound fine. You know? And also feedback mm. from mastering engineers. I mean, we, me and Andrea used to get. Like the mastering engineer would say, Jesus Christ, you know, so much bass. And there's reverb on the bass, and there's reverb on the bass right. drum, and there's reverb everywhere. And fuck, you know. So we'd get that feedback, but he would also say, But I can sort that out. It's not a problem. You know, it, 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 it's just on the edge of being a problem. But he, he would give us that feedback. So the next mix we would send him would be slightly tamed, but we'd still go for the limit. You know, you want to, right. you, you know, that's also going back to what we said before was about the electronic music being out otherworldly and stuff. There are no, mm. unlike a rock band or you, you can push the boundaries of even what a mastering engineer wants or what a listener wants. You can have stupid amounts of bass and reverb on the bass. And it's not because it's not acoustic or it doesn't have a, it doesn't come from the real world. This stuff is allowed. So I, I do think with electronic music, you can perhaps go further than you can with, say, a rock band where, you know, if the bass drum is too bassy and too loud, it's just too bassy and too loud. It's it's screwing up your mix. In electronic music, mm. that might be what you want. Where do you stand on the issue of dynamic range compression when you're sending off, like, let's say you've finished the record and it's going mm. off the mastering engineer. Do you, do you say anything to the engineer, or, you know, about, like, don't crush it or do what you want i mean do you give any sort of 
basic instructions well, now, or guidance? Uh, I think it, it's sort of understood. It must. I, I mean, I haven't done so much for a long time, but um, I think I almost always said, please don't compress the life out of it, you know, and, and I don't really go for compression. Um, mm. But then again, most mastering engineers now don't seem to, in my experience. It's kind of, if you're not doing pop and if you don't say, I want it loud, you know, if you want it loud, they're going to make it loud. If you say, I don't need it yeah. loud, then they appreciate the fact that they don't have to, uh, you know, it's the volume issue, which is the bigger problem. Why do you need compression if you don't want the volume up? And and in ambient, the dynamic, we had that actually on the Apollo, um, was it on the Apollo compilation? There's me and Andrea, the track, um, Too Good to be Strange. I think it's on the Apollo mm. 1 compilation or something. And it's compressed at the beginning. And the whole, the beginning was a sequence on my old ARP synth that was very dainty and very, and with a reverb in the background. And then when we first heard it, the reverb is full up there. It's as loud as the sequence because it's just slapped through a compressor. compressor. Huh. And uh, it really bugged us. Um, that's on the CD. <laughs> and so that right. used to happen. And that, But that wouldn't happen these days. I, I don't think a mastering engineer would be that unsympathetic. You know, he, he's got the original and he would listen to what he's done and he would say, well, that sounds completely different and clearly rubbish. Uh, you know, I think we've come a long way in mastering. And, uh, you know, but then again, people still do ask for very – I do mastering uh, for a couple of labels, actually. And um, Oh, right. Okay. I, yeah, but I'm very um, – I know my limits, uh, if you know what I mean. I mm. kind of – I do ambient and I do electronic. Um, I wouldn't go anywhere with vocals or with uh, – you know, uh, with a pop aesthetic or anything like that. But I, I kind of, uh, uh, I think I'm, I'm okay at doing ambient mastering, mm. uh, because what? I'm very subtle. I'm very delicate. And I, 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 and I listen in again, into the background of the things. So I don't, um, if I'm doing any mastering, I listen into the background and if the background changes, I know I'm doing something wrong. If you know what I mean? I, I yeah, it, it should still sound the same, but just, you know, perhaps it's a bit too dull or a bit too bright, or there's a bit too much bass, or there's not quite enough middle or stuff like that, but very subtle. And, mm. um, you know, so I think with mastering, you know, more and more people do think like I do about it, that, you know, we're not here to stamp a, you know, stamp something on it. We're here to just make it sound as good as it can without changing it. Yeah. Could I draw you on your favorite sounding uh, solo album? Like the one that you think sounds the best, not not the best musically, because they're probably mine. all of, yeah. Because I would pick Sanctum, but I don't know whether you would agree. Oh, that's a strange one to choose. Wow. I, I do like that, but I would say um, The Origin of Storms. Okay. Well, this is which what you haven't there, heard. So, <laughs> yes. so I that need could, to make good that on could, that, right? That's my excuse. He hasn't heard it. So. <laughs> right. No, no, no. But, uh, I do like that one, but it's much simpler. It's much more electronic. Um, 
Uh, you know, okay. there's less drum. There's no drums. There's no. You know, it's more sequences and chords. And, and um, yeah, Tilted was mastered by in in Munich, and mm. um, I I like elements of that album. The sound is very powerful. Some of it, um, mm. uh, but the overall sound is is you know of its era <laughs> whereas you know i do think other stuff i've done kind of doesn't sound dated or it just sounds how it sounds you know and sanctum mm. is one of them i'd agree can we come back to the the economics of of being a musician yeah. being an electronic musician yeah. trying to make money from putting out records you said in the late 90s or certainly the the, the early to mid 90s it was pretty easy right or re yeah. relative yeah. to now so i think many of us know how the format of choice has shifted yeah but how has that affected you i mean let me ask a more direct question right so yeah in terms of spotify earnings i don't want to know numbers because that's good no, no, of me to ask but i can tell you nothing <laughs> okay yeah nothing okay nothing spotify nothing because i hardly have anything up there um right and what i do have up there is controlled by probably rns and mm. And I won't say anything wrong, but apparently I'm the minus with them, which I don't understand. <laughs> but that's a, okay. a different matter. Um, but to be honest, I'm I'm not. I've never been someone who sold big numbers in any way. Mm. I just I kept putting. You know, I worked. I put things out, and some of them did okay. Um, uh, but. I never relied on that either, if you know what I mean. Renat used to pay me for mixing mm. things or doing stuff, and people paid me for for, for working on their projects or whatever. Mm. Uh, but royalties and things were, you know, I mean, I still get from the era so publishing stuff from songs that, you know, certainly me and Andrea, the, the stuff was used in, in film and TV. And um, like I had a couple of pieces in... Like one was in, uh, what's it called, uh, Vanilla Sky. Um, okay. There's a piece of me and Andrea's in there and stuff. So occasionally you get something. But, I mean, you know, the world I inhabited is not a commercial world in, in financial terms, you know. It's okay if you're mm. Aphex Twin, you know. Yes. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, I sort of, throughout the 90s, it was fine. Uh, and since then, it's just got harder and harder. But. I've never had, you know, to worry in, in terms of, I mean, I've always had backup plans. I've always, you know, one thing I used to do was always buy gear and, and sell it. And, you know, I did very well out of buying, I was into analog synths before most people. So I picked oh. up some very choice pieces, uh, mm. you know, and, uh, and they added up to a lot of money over the years because they were the sort of rarest of the rare. And um, so I did a bit of dealing in, in, in that world, you know, buying and selling. Mm. And not even as a business plan, simply I wanted those synths and I used them. And at a certain point, they become became valuable and I needed some money. So I sold one and used half the money to buy something else and then used that for two or three years. And then that doubled in value. And then I sold that. And, you know, I that was my modus operandi for years was just huh. having these backup plans 
having said that, you know, I had periods where things did, money did come in from projects and, um, you know, mm. uh, but it's a hard business. It's not, it's very rewarding, but it's not, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm being very honest here. I think lots of people like to pretend that they do very well out of music uh, when they, when they don't really, you know, mm. it's, um, you know, all the names we drop. Yes. You know, the, 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 the Aphex Twin, the Ortecas, the but these they're at the top of the tree, you know. They're it's it they're they're really the one percent. Um and uh, everyone else has to do what they can, you know, and, and you mix things, you master things, you buy a bit of gear, sell a bit of gear, you you know, you work on a project. I record people doing rock projects if I can, you know. I love alternative music if if you know mm. uh if it's if it's paid work and if it's working in the studio doing music, you know, I'm not, I'm not bothered. It's, it's all enjoyable, but it's very hard these days. And, um, and where does, where does Bandcamp fit into all of this for you? Well, Bandcamp is the only one that makes sense for me, to be honest. You know, I, mm. I, I mean, you get to keep moat, you know, or a larger majority of the money. Um, mm. it's a direct link with your audience. Um, you can put things up there whenever you want. Uh, you're in total control, usually. Um, I, f I find it very fair, you know. And also, um, if you if you want to do that as an artist, and I would recommend it to any young artist, um, you know, with Bandcamp, they don't mind whether you're selling CDs, vinyl, or mugs or T-shirts. Well, you know, go for it. Put your merchandise up there. Uh, have a whole you know, and be in control of it all. And you, you, mm. you, you know, it's, and this isn't meant to sound negative, but you'll probably make more money selling t-shirts than vinyl. Um, you know, everyone needs a t-shirt. So it's got a nice logo on it. You could sell a hundred t-shirts a month, <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and, and that's the reality of it. You know, I'm kind of jealous of young these days. If, if I was 18, 19 now, the world is really your oyster digitally. You can get things mm. out there. They can reach everywhere on the planet, but that's not my world. I come from, you know, I was born in 1965. I'm not, you know, I, uh, computers, my first computer, I was, you know, 20. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's a, if I, if I was 18 today, I, I think totally differently about the world and I'd be up for trying everything and every avenue and selling all sorts of, you know, whether it's CD, vinyl, cassettes, you know, everything is possible these days. But, you know, I started in the late 80s, um, uh, and I'm just used to that way of working. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's um, not my world, if you know what I mean. I want to end by asking you about reissues, because there's yeah. been a, a whole slew of 90s electronic compilations that have come out in the last two or three years. I don't know whether you've noticed these. I'm sure you have. Mm. And it does seem that enough time has now passed from, yeah. Yeah, from the 90s to now that it's now cool again, right? Because in the yeah. noughties it wasn't, in the 2010s it wasn't, but now it is. And I'm wondering, A, would RNS consider like a David Morley retrospective with you know a bunch of your earlier tracks as a compilation to put it out there? Yeah. And B, whether you'd be, whether you're the kind of person that would instigate a sort of well, broader compilation of just RNS stuff from the nineties, because <laughs> Renat seems to be toying a little bit more 
on social yeah. media, well, his team with the with some of the '90s releases. Yeah, but I don't know the guy, so I'm sorry, and I don't expect you to speak for for him. But no, um, no, I don't. Being, being a passionate fan, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I was very close with Renat for a long time, but we worked closely together. When I was in the studio. I mean, I have mm. incredible memories with Renat. Uh, like one of my big memories in life is a cassette arriving in the RNS office when I was there with Renard, the office being the studio at the same time. It was really a one bedroom flat when I first started working there. And we had mm. some gear in the living room, and next to it was the fax and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, the Aphex Twin cassette arrived, and he put it on, and we heard the tracks uh, from um, Selected Ambient Works 1. Huh. Uh, wow. And I, I was standing there next to him and we looked at each other like, Jesus. And he's like, picked up the phone. Okay, I'm going to release this, you know? And so mm. him allowing me to have that world where I, you know, discovered uh, the Aphex Twin and heard that music probably before, you know, anything apart from anyone apart from his close circle of friends and stuff like that happening. I, you know, I, I will always be uh, grateful to Renard. Mm. And um, having said that, <laughs> uh, you know, things I don't know. I, I I don't really want to look back at that period because I don't like what happened later. You know, he mm. it, it, stuff with RNS went awry, in my opinion. Um, what's being released now, not my thing at all on RNS. I don't, you know, Agreed. I, it, yeah. it, it's just nothing to do with anything I would relate to. Uh, so, uh, and some, uh, and lots of people love it. So this, again, this is not a criticism. It's just not the RNS that I know. So it wouldn't interest mm. me to do anything on their label as such. Um, having said that, uh, you, I would like to have a retrospective of my own stuff at some point. Cause I think if, if mm. I take things from the different eras, I could, I could have a lovely album, um, of pieces that perhaps lots of people don't know, you know, if you put it all together, mm. because, you know, like uh, Sanctum was a fairly small release that I don't know if many people, you know, really know it or something and, and specific songs on it. Uh, they would go with some of the songs from Tilted and uh, some of my EP things, but mm. it's a lot of work to, to go through all of that and to, you know, where would I really, would I do it myself on Bandcamp? I think it would be worth a, a, a fuller release somewhere. Mm. Um, and in general, like you were saying about the nineties era of RNS electronic music, there's so many undiscovered gems out there that, you know, that, that were B sides on people's EPs that most people mm -hmm. don't know, but they're a great piece of music, but I don't know if it's feasible to be honest. I just don't know if it's feasible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the economic reality of such a, such a kind of compilation, yeah. but I'm just expressing my enthusiasm as a fan in general of your work and also of the R early R&S stuff. Because yeah. I even rem remember there was a cover mount cassette yeah. that Music, Music Magazine put yeah, out, yeah. right? Yeah. You know yeah. the one? Yeah, the green and cassette. I, I've, I, yeah, and I've, I mean, it's that's lost to, the, to time really in yeah. my life because I've moved around so much. Yeah. But, there was some killer stuff on that, including yeah. that Capricorn 20 Hertz track, which is, I think, where I first heard it, yeah. which is why I'm so frustrated about that, about that new remix. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing, you know. To, I, I, I find 
um, that in that instance, why why bother? You know, it 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 exists. It it should. It's it. I don't think there's a reason to to look back anymore, unless you're putting the originals in their place. You know, now is as you said. Mm. Now there's a new generation of people who don't know all those tracks. They won't know Capricorn or. Uh, they won't know some of my things. They won't know some of CJ's things. They, to put them on a nice compilation or, you know, and, and to promote it and do it properly, um, people would discover what a wonderful world that era was. People who mm. maybe, you know, actually don't look back because nothing's turned their ear because it's not out there in the same way as it could be. Um, but to sort of combine it with trying to, you know, new versions and new things and still keep selling the old stuff kind of, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's, uh, like, like on CJ's horsepower or something. Like, I, I think it was that there's so many remixes over the years. It just keeps getting remixed every few years. Mm. And, and I don't, you know, that, that kind of, uh, again, not a criticism. If, if it works business wise, great. I'm up for everyone earning a living and everything, but but I don't quite get it. I don't see the point. It's, and, and also, I still fundamentally think, you know, music exists in, like, my evolution track. I put that down mm. in my basement, and it was live, and I didn't keep any of the sounds or any of the, the you know, I couldn't reproduce it if I wanted to, and I'm happy about mm. that. It was a moment that was captured, and I, and I personally love it. You know, I listen to it and I still think, okay, that was a moment where I did something that I love. Um, mm. One of the first ones where I really liked it and really thought I've got something here. I've done something which I've reached a point in my musical evolution, you know, and um, and that's it. Then I moved on to the next thing. That was there. It was captured. It's there. Everyone can hear it if they want. And it doesn't need a remix. It doesn't need a change. It doesn't, you know, that, that, that is my perspective on those things. But I guess if you have something that's a hit and record labels just want to make as much out of it as possible, as do artists, and that's fair enough. But, you know, I can't really think like that. That that That's, you know, how I see it. I understand where you're coming from, actually, because I was kind of frustrated by the Orbital 30-something release, which... Mm -hmm which lent heavily on modern day remixes. And for me, none of them were as good as the originals. Yeah. I don't mind if they're better or they add something new or they take it in a weird direction. Yeah. But, yeah. From, but then again, it might be my age and maybe I'm just not connected to kind of the way electronic music is at right now, as would be the case with modern day R and S yeah. because I would, I, I do want to mention actually mm. for me, peak R and S was the compilation in order to dance number five, yeah. which I still think stands up as just a, a masterwork of, yeah. or a great snapshot of all the kind of, well, I guess it was more techno than ambient techno at the time. It was more techno, but it and was still a great compilation. Yeah, Brilliant. I mean, yeah. but really forward thinking the packaging, that limited packaging they did, which I never got my hands on actually, um, was mm -hmm. just also very future facing, you know, otherworldly, right? And crazy. Yeah. I mean, a crazy idea, an expensive idea. You know, he, yes. you know, it wasn't something. That again, that's the point, the crossover point where putting money into something because you wanted it, not because it would make financial sense, not because, you know, it was just something, you know, RNS, the future was always RNS's thing. You know, it was, uh, 
And uh, doing that was because Bernard wanted to. It wasn't because he thought this is a great business plan. And that, you know, that that was always the positive side of uh, of RNS. Uh, and I, and I think that's you know like you say thirtieth anniversary orbital or whatever is it really you know there for the right reason and again I don't want to be negative because if people want to earn a living and people I'm really not saying don't do it I'm just saying I I don't mm. see the point personally um, like my stuff being remixed has no sense makes no sense to me whatsoever. It has zero sense. You know, I just see them as uh, fragments that are captured in time and you could probably age me by my music, you know, more, more than anything. Um, yes. And I think that's probably part of the charm, isn't it? But I, I guess, you know, it's a bit like somebody saying, I know, let's remix Selected Ambient Works Volume 1, which mm. I think people would be just lose their minds if they heard yeah, that idea. Yeah. Go, no, I probably would. Never do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Terrible yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. Some I mean, things are and, just and not. That's, no, and and also it's the the whole sort of uh, uh, the thing of remixing is I'm not even against it. There, there's, for example, uh, which is it? The Aphex Twin, his EP on. I don't know if you know that one. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a remix of that with by. Ah, uh, really, music. Yes. Mute this, or re reload. There's a reload one. The music. Reload, one. reload. The reload remix. Yes. Oh my God! You know, and this doesn't take anything away from Richard. You know, uh, no. his stuff is perfect, but that remix I heard that I was like, oh, damn! You know, how good can you get? How beautiful! And and I mean, that's you know, that's the only reason for me to do a remix. Say something beautiful, uh, take it away mm. and make it your own, which is what happened there. And and it doesn't take anything away from the original. You're not comparing the two. It's just a new you know, it's the same piece of music, but existing in a different place. And, and that's so rare with remixes, you know, it's very hard for a great track to be bettered uh, in a remix. So I guess that's, you know, I, like I said, I'm not, I'm totally not against remixes, but they have to be exceptional for me to really get excited by them. Well, I mean, you can think about a release like Ventolin, which mm -hmm. was two CDs of, I don't know, five or six remixes each or versions each. Yeah. And I hate every single one of them. <clears throat> I can't yeah. stand that track, yeah. but I am very happy that that, that release exists that because it, exists, it is yeah. so abrasive. Yeah. Like, it's so abrasive. Yeah. But I, I guess this isn't, we're going to get into, well, my general problem with music is that it, it it's not offensive in any way, mm. either sonically, lyrically. And I always thought when I got to 50, because I only turned 50 last year. Yeah. When I, when I got to this age that I would find modern music so obnoxious and nah. just like a noise I don't understand. It's and lame. it's the opposite. Yeah, it's middle of the it, road. It, it's lame. It kind it's, of is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I love, as, as you say, I love annoying, obnoxious music. I mean, you know, that could be because I did grow up through the punk sort of I don't know if you if you know any you know like Crass or bands like that. I know of them. I've uh, never really dug well, into them too much. But I mean, you know, on one hand, is awful. I mean, it's so badly recorded. It's 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 dreadful. Ah, mm. oh, but it's you know, for me, it said everything at the time. You know, it was just fantastic. It was like you know, their their EPs had pay no more than twenty five p for this single on it. You mm. know, it was very anti commercialism and and stuff like that. And they were angry. And it was shitty, 
but it was fantastic. I loved it, you know? Mm. Um, and now everything sounds good. You know, it's, it's like, Ugh. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want it to sound good. I want things to be, you know, fucked up occasionally and just badly done. It's at least it sounds like you, you know, why did you put the guitar so loud? Cause I like it like that. Okay. That's fine. You know? Yeah. Everything now is perfect. And that's, again, we could have a 10 hour discussion on software and DAWs and all that stuff. You know, the copy and paste uh, attitude, you know, people yes. don't, people forget that, that, I mean, there was copy and paste at the time, but most of the time you were running things live. You were running from the beginning of the track to the end of the track and you didn't have enough, you know, tape or mixer channels to use everything. And you'd have to play things in live and you'd fuck up occasionally. And it would, but that would be the moment people would go, oh, I love that bit. And, you know, and now everything is under control and everything can be, re, uh, you know, recalled and, uh, mm. and, uh, it was, it was flying by the seat of your pants a little bit in those days, you know, a mix was an event. And I think you hear it in the music. You hear that mm. there were people at the desk pushing things up and occasionally you pushed it too loud, but that was the only mix you had time for. So that's the mix you hear. Um, that for me is, you know, says everything really. It's moments captured in time and moments shouldn't, they're not necessarily perfect. But it is captured, and it it happened, right? You know? And not not fully manicured, exactly. <laughs> so you know, yeah. So I agree with you totally. You know, it's uh, when things are too good, or too nice, or too pleasant, or too well done. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't do it's it. It's just not me. interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. And I'm not saying there aren't interesting bits of music that I dig into, and I I, I guess I find it harder and harder as I get older to kind of yeah keep a finger on the pulse of interesting things. But yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, if you look at, say, um, Resident Advisor, right, mm -hmm. which is, a, I mean, most of my audience will know that it's the world's biggest or most popular website that covers electronic music, yeah. mainly in the club space. Yeah. But even then, the, the music that's kind of regularly championed through that channel I don't find especially interesting. And it's gone through the same evolution that RNS went through, Warp went through, in yeah. that it, it, it has broadened to such a degree, which is a good thing for many people. But yeah. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a little bit like on the spectrum. I like a lot of things to have a, a very tight focus yeah. in terms of sound. So I, I can go for a long way down a very narrow niche yeah. and find lots of interesting things, right? Yeah. But now it's no longer a niche because it's just this broad church of electronic yeah. music and you've got boiler room part of it and all that kind of stuff. And I just find none of that is interesting to me because no. it's none of it is otherworldly, right? Yeah. It's definitely nothing otherworldly other about most clubs. So well, and I it, find you know, ultimately, <laughs> you know, and I don't think many people would argue with the fact that it's very generic. You know, there, there's there's like, a formula now in place. There, there's a formula. That there was never a formula that you know, uh, you might like certain songs more than other songs, but they are formula formulaic. You know the the sounds mm. are formulaic, the arrangements are, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad songs. But again, I sort of, you know, I miss that. It, it, I was going to mention things about arrangements in music. You know, again, mm. going back to the Grace Jones "Slave to the Rhythm." If you listen to that mm. arrangement, it's masterful. There's, it's it it's not four bars each time, and it's the way it's done and the way the instruments come in and go out and everything. 
and, and in electronic music, you had that as well. You had, you know, uh, sections that were that made no sense timing wise. You know, they'd mm. be thirteen bars long, and then this melody would come in halfway through where it came in before, and with a different sound or a different tuning or whatever. Um, but that was that was the interest in it. That was the, you know, the, the unexpected side that made it unique and made it not real. You know, not not grounded in acoustic music and um if i hear modern takes on techno i never hear a bar of seven eight i never hear a a, a sort of mistake i don't hear anything other than what i expect to hear all the time mm. i mean i'm generalizing there's plenty of good music i really sound like an old fart now but i i, I mean i'm I'm definitely generalizing, but, but there's, you know, there's uh, over what's, I don't know how to say it, but you know, the mass of it is generic and it's very hard to find the gems anymore because there's so much of it out there. Um, that unless you're directed very carefully to the choice pieces, you know, you're just overwhelmed by, you know, what I would call fairly mediocre versions of techno. Business yeah. techno. Yeah, yeah. And again, <laughs> I, you know, just to be fair, I'm so happy if someone is raking it in, making a song that makes people dance. Mm. Who am I to say that's a bad thing? I'm talking purely from my age, my listener perspective, my sonic choices or aesthetics or whatever. You know, so it's just, you know, an old fart's opinion, but, you know. It is what it is. No, I get it, David. But I've got to say, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today, no, not cool. just about your music and your career history, but also as a music fan whose whose tastes and worldview seems to align with my own. And maybe that's me sounding a bit egotistical. I no, know, no, I like, think I, 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 I know that I knew before we spoke that our, our tastes would be aligned. I, I you right. know, I, I've seen, you know, a few of, when I watch you on YouTube and you've, brought up a few tracks that you know you always bring up the ones that i'm like yep you know i like it <laughs> so well that's good <laughs> yeah but it right. but it also i don't think there's any magic in 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 that it's just they are good tracks there's no one going to argue yeah. against it you know they are it's just there are great pieces of music from that era and almost everyone will agree um, well, I think some of my audience will disagree because they think I listen to nothing but broken washing machine music, okay. which is some <laughs> yeah. problem I'm kind of trying to overcome by putting Neil Young and Stevie yeah. Dan and even the, the Doobie Brothers, who I never listened yeah, right. to, in a video. So people kind of get the fact that it's yeah, not yeah. just electronic music here. But No, but if it's your passion, if electronic music appears to be your passion, but if that doesn't yes. mean, like me, that it doesn't mean you don't enjoy or love other forms of music or other stuff doesn't move you or you know we're talking about this world which we inhabit which we grew up in and everything and it's important mm -hmm. to our lives but if you take music if you take your life out of music we can truly appreciate you know every genre and and everything and uh, you know it's just what we're talking about today is is something that we're very perhaps too intense with if you know what i mean it's uh, <laughs> It's Possibly, too important. Yes. Too important to us. We grew up with that. It changed our worlds. It's what 
drove us to love music, to buy records, to collect music, to look for hi-fi gear in your world. And um, that's very important, you know. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, David, we must draw this to close because okay. we've it's... we've hit the two hour mark, and wow. um, I, th- I think if we've still got any any listeners left at this point, I'll be amazed. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> really, <laughs> I know that some friends of mine will be like, "Yeah, I, I heard the first ten minutes. It was kind of a, yeah. 